We'll be looking at chapter 6, Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Uh, it is one of the exciting books in the Old Testament. I'm not sure that most of you would agree with that. Uh, but it is very fascinating to be able to see the wisdom of God that has been preserved and presented for us that's over 2,800 years old. Solomon, uh, in all of his glory, ends up writing this book. Uh, before I get into the text, I want to bring up the word cloud and remind everyone that you are at New Covenant Church. We are a Bible-believing congregation, and we would like you to be a part of it. I'll be offering a new members class this week, I think on the 30th. If you're available, please give me a call. We would like you to be numbered with the people of God, because we are unashamedly Bible-driven. Uh, if it's in the Word of God, we want to proclaim it. If it's not in the Word of God, then we're hesitant uh, to, be, to even have to dabble with it. Uh, our focus as a church body is to respond to Jesus Christ, the head of the body, and uh, he tells us to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. Hence, you can see we're gospel-driven. And because of the gospel, because he forgives our sin, because he changes our, our attitude, he opens our eyes, we see new things. You can see all the other things. We should be friendly and caring. Uh, we should be regional, reformed, generational. All those kind of things flow out of the fact that we are Bible-believing. Uh, now let me encourage you to open your Bibles. You can turn in, in the pew Bibles that are provided, or it might actually be on the slide, or if you're bringing your own Bibles, turn to Ecclesiastes. Uh, it is in the poetry section of the Old Testament. Uh, that is that uh, there's five books of Moses, uh, and then there are 12 books of history, and then there are five poetry books. Uh, those poetry books are interesting. You have Job, Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And even though they're not all chronological, you can see that Job is a drama, tells us a lot of insight. Uh, the Psalms is a hymn book. It helps us to know how to sing. Uh, even some of the songs even today are phrases that come out of the book of Psalms. Uh, and, uh, and, there, and, and some of those psalms are beautiful. We ought to be singing more of them. Then when you get into the book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, those are three books written by the same author. One was written when he was young. Sometimes we attribute puppy love to Song of Solomon. Uh, but then as a young man, he was or somebody that's a dad. Uh, he wrote the book of Proverbs, 31 chapters. And, uh, and then as an older man, he writes Ecclesiastes. So if you're opening your Bibles up to Ecclesiastes, you'll find that in the Pew Bibles, and that's found on, uh, let's see if I get this right, uh, it's found on page 707, 707 in your Pew Bibles. Uh, so let us reverently attend to the public reading of God's inerrant, inspired, infallible word as it was given in the originals. Uh, we'll be looking at chapter 6. I want to start with the last verse, verse 12, uh, to be able to see where we're going to end. And then I'll come back and we'll cover the whole text. Uh, the question is raised in chapter 6, verse 12. Solomon says, For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? It's an interesting verse. At the end of his argument in chapter 6, he asks these two questions. For who knows what is good for a man while he is alive? And the second question, who can tell man what's going to come next? The title of our message today is, What's on the Horizon? What's coming next? Those of you that are planners, you might be able to tell me what comes next uh, because of the fact that you've planned it. 
Those of you that are creatures of habit, you might be able to tell me what comes next because you've lived through it again and again and again. Like what time we're going to get out of service today or what, where you're going to eat lunch today. All those things might actually be habits, patterns. But the question that he's raising today is much more deeper than that. So let me go and take you through the text. I'll be reading in the ESV chapter 6. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun. This is chapter 6, verse 1. It lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that that man lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy those things. But a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he who has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than that man. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it is not seen, and moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over and yet enjoy no good, for do not all go to one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is never satisfied. For what advantage has that wise person over the fool? And what does the poor person have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is a vanity and a striving after the wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. Verse 11. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to that man? Verse 12. For who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of this vain life, which pass like a shadow? For who can tell that man what will be after him while he lives under the sun? Lord, I pray that you'll give us some insight, and I pray that you'll help us to understand, help us to perceive, and I pray that you will get, uh, enable us to see things the way you would like us to see them. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. There are many things that could be discussed, but today's passage is about man and woman. might be very appropriate for us as we're getting ready for this gender conference uh, but the question is, what's on the horizon? What comes next? Some of you have heard me say that I had a season of mourning at the beginning of 22. And I looked over the horizon and said, what does it look like for God's people? What is the estate of the church? This beautiful thing, this ecclesia that God says, uh, Jesus said while he was on earth, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not be able to prevent its advance. And yet I'm looking around and statistics are revealing that the church is becoming insignificant to the majority of the population. 
It used to be, and some of you remember it, that when you scheduled your week, you were in church on Sunday school, you were at church for, for worship, you were at church on Sunday night, and you even made it for church on Wednesday night for prayer meeting. How often do you go to church now? Oh, everything's the same, right? I'm sure you get spiritually fed to the same degree. In fact, some of you might even make the case that you're, you're actually studying more than you've ever studied and that you're listening to more podcasts and preachers than you've ever done before. Some of that may be true, but I think it's fewer and fewer of you that would be able to claim that. You see, things have changed. What is on the horizon? What would make people want to flock back to church? Just think about that for a moment. You all have neighbors that obviously when you drove to church today, they didn't leave their house. You saw their cars in the driveway. Or you might have even seen them like we did at the beach. We had hundreds of people out there running the 5K right on the boardwalk. This is the first time I've had to park way back in Rehoboth. They took my parking spaces. <laughs> all kinds of people doing all kinds of things on Sunday morning. Church isn't that important to them. What's coming next? What would make church important to them? Well, if you put on your thinking cap, if you try to be like the picture of Socrates on the front of the bulletin, you'd say, hmm, you know what would probably bring people to church? You can use the two analogies. Uh, why do bees go and make, uh, I mean, why do bears go into the beehives? Is it to get stung? No, it's because they're looking for honey. So if people are really looking for that sweetness that can only be found with God, they'll flock to church. If not, they're going to look for their honey someplace else. Now that's the positive side. The negative side of thing is that when things really get bad, where do you turn? You can finish the quote, there's no atheists in foxholes. When the troubles come, when life is on the line, you're going to realize that's when a lot of times people are going to run to God. What comes next? Are we in the state of affairs where things are going to uh, cause people to run to the church because we have the answers and they can't find anywhere else? Is the young people going to come here because they find a, a taste of heaven? I think the opposite is true. Many young people today, and maybe even some of you there here, have scar tissue from church. And you're wondering, well, I'm, I'm going to keep it at an arm's distance. Well, I'm trying to make the point that a lot of us don't know what is on the horizon. And in, in chapter 6, verse 12, if you follow along that verse, he says, for who can tell a man what's coming next under the sun? That's what we're going to deal with today. Uh, I wanted you to be able to follow along in the text today as we opened up Ecclesiastes because I don't think most of you have this text memorized. I've never found anybody that has found a verse in chapter 6 that is one of your favorites. Yet I want you to know that there are some beautiful, beautiful things that are there. And as we walk through them, I pray that you'll understand chapter 6 better than you've ever understood it. Uh, if you have the fourth point uh, insert, the, uh, the supplement that's on the back table, uh, I'll share with you, there are, when you go through this text, these 12 verses, you'll find that there are three illustrations. And then they're followed by three insights, or maybe four. And then after that, there are two rhetorical questions or interrogatives. 
So let me summarize that for you, and then we're going to walk through this together. There are illustrations, insights, and interrogatives within this text. And all of these are weaved together in order to get us to the point that we're saying, I get it. Okay, I want to begin by asking you this question. Why in the world is he even tackling this topic? Or, or maybe I should back up a little more and say, what is the topic? Okay, some of you might say, well, it is what comes next. No, the reason that he's asking the question, what comes next, is because people have been living life. Solomon is an older man. He's lived and he's been king for 40 years. And he's writing this, I believe, right at the end of his, uh, his life. And as he's, he's giving us these insights, he is explaining something. People are joyless. They don't have a cup full and running over. They're miserable. Now, if you, if you turn to the last verses of chapter 5, I want to be able to tell you that there was hope. If, I, uh, if verse 18 of chapter 5, it says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is for people to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil which is under the sun under the, uh, with the few days of his life that God has given him. Now, if you look at verse 18 of chapter 5, do you understand? God is giving you some days in life. And he says, enjoy these days. Make them, mind, uh, be, use them. You know, they're, they're to be fulfilling. And he says, you do have some days under the sun that God has given you. Verse 19, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. Now, most of you didn't pick up on this before, but God actually is not miserable. God is not sitting up there frowning like a, like a father that says, you are bad kids. Or like the mother that used to be, uh, you wait till your father gets home. In chapter 5, verse 19, God is pleased to give wealth, possession, and power and to people, and they're supposed to enjoy it because this is a gift from God. Did you see that in verse uh, at the end? This is the gift of God. Now, once you end up seeing that, it is beautiful. Verse 20, he, he concludes the thought. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. And that's where I want to begin. Do you have joy in your heart? Some of you, if I took a picture of you, you don't look like you're very joyful. I imagine if you looked in the mirror, you would say that you're not looking very joyful. As I said, there's, there is a, uh, chapter 3, there's a season to be happy and a season to be sad. There's a time to be born, a time to reap. Uh, I mean, all those times. So yes, there is a moment when you can definitely be miserable. You shouldn't be, you shouldn't be happy when sin is being promoted. But we are supposed to have something, as the New Testament talks about, that, trans, trans, uh, that goes beyond anything of our circumstances. We have a peace that passes earthly understanding. A, the joy of the Lord is our strength. And God gives us this gift. And so when you get the joy of the Lord, it doesn't, it shouldn't seep out. It shouldn't be like a, a helium balloon that was really beautiful during the birthday party. But two days later, it doesn't look like a balloon anymore. The helium seems to have seeped out. That's not the way it works with Christians. When God fills our cup with joy, it's not supposed to seep out so that you're joyless. 
No, in fact, if you go to, to, to David, his father, our cup should be running over because God is constantly filling it even though we live in a fallen and a broken world. So having looked at chapter 5, there is a God's gift to you is to have a purposeful life that's filled with joy. Now you pick up in chapter 6, and we look at three illustrations. When we walk through these three illustrations, you're going to see that this is what happens uh, to the secular people who do not have the joy. He gives us three illustrations, and he says, This evil that I have seen under the sun, it lies heavy on mankind. He is now speaking as a pundit, as if he's been interviewed by some TV commentator. The, the TV interviewer comes, puts the microphone in front of Solomon and says, There is something that's just not right. It's an evil that's under the sun. When you live on this earth, you'll know what, I what I'm talking about. And he says, It lies heavy on mankind. In other words, we can't forget it. It just doesn't disappear. Each morning we feel it, we, we sense it. It's a frustration with life. And then he says in verse 2, this is where most people are. A man to whom God gives wealth, possession, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Isn't that wonderful? You're supposed to nod your head. Then the rest of the verse. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. You're thinking, I just heard that God gives a gift to people that they can enjoy life. If I go back to chapter uh, 19, uh, chapter 5, verse 19, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possession and power to enjoy them and to accept that person's lot and to rejoice in those toil, this is God's gift to people. But in verse 6, chapter 2, or chapter 6, verse 2, a man to whom God gives these things, wealth, possession, and honor, so that he has everything he desires, yet God doesn't give him the power to enjoy those. Instead, a stranger enjoys them. And, and, and uh, the pundit says, this is so empty, this is grievous, this is an awful evil. It shouldn't be this way. That's what people are experiencing. We know that God has given a gift. He's given all these things. He's given the power to be able to enjoy them. And yet most people go around this world and they don't have the power to enjoy them because God has not given them that. That was the first illustration, is a prosperity without happiness. It is really strange and it's grievous. Now, the second illustration that he comes up to be able to show the joyless situation is, the, is uh, in verses 3 through 5, a progeny without hope, or excuse me, a, a progeny without honor. In verses 3 through 5, if, 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 if a person uh, has a hundred children, <laughs> I just want to almost laugh a little bit. Um, some of you know my parents, they had eight kids that lived, and uh, that seems to be a big family. I've been trying to encourage my kids to be fruitful and multiply, but none of them seem to go to those numbers. But if you had a hundred children, and of course that would take a few years to get, even if you had an octo, whatever they said, when you have eight kids at once, uh, I couldn't believe that uh, some of the pictures of that, uh, the kids are going to preschool now. But if you had a hundred children and lived many, many years, so that the days of those years are many, and then there's a word but in verse three. But that person's soul isn't satisfied with life's good things. Now, why wouldn't they be satisfied? 
You know, I could take you to Proverbs where it says, children are a heritage from the Lord. They're a blessing to you. And if you had one kid, you'd be blessed. If you had a hundred kids, you'd be a hundredfold blessed, right? Uh, you'd be tired too. <laughs> but his point here, as he's given this illustration, if you had all these children, but you still didn't find that zing in life, and he goes on to explain a little bit more. He says, your soul's not satisfied with what you have, and you also have no burial, no funeral. You've been forgotten. When you died, nobody cared. But you had a hundred kids. He says in this illustration, I say that a stillborn child would be better off than you. For that child, that stillborn, comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, that stillborn child has not seen the sun, nor known anything of this world, and yet it finds rest. Now think about that for a moment. The illustration is somebody that seems to have the whole big family dynamic, and yet is forsaken or dishonored even to the point of being forgotten at a funeral, it would have been better for him to not even have breathed one breath on this earth. What an illustration of the joyless existence of people. The third illustration comes in, and it's kind of interesting in verse 6 and 7. He says, even though a person should live a thousand years. Now that's kind of interesting. Instead of a hundred kids, now he gives you a thousand years. For some of you that have lived already three score and ten, you're wondering, is a thousand years a good idea? Just think about your doctor regiment that you would go day after day, all the different doctors. If you lived a thousand years, you'd know everybody. But then it's not just a thousand years. Look at the text, he says, and even though a person should live a thousand years twice over, not just 1,000, but double that. And then he goes on to explain it a little bit. Um, he says, uh, and, and enjoy no good. That's kind of an interesting summary. He says, don't all go to the same place. Now, let me explain that illustration for you. He says it's not about how many people you're surrounded with, but the length of your life. You know, some people really thought that you want a long life and you'd take all the shots to be able to get a long life. You know, some of us really think, let's, let's live as long as we can. But a thousand years doesn't seem to be as appealing. But he says, oh, not just a thousand, I'll give you ten, I'll give you two thousand. The way this really explains it is this, is that if you have a playtime without hope. You lived a thousand years. Wow. What do you do over those days? I didn't even take the time to calculate 365 times a thousand times two. But it, it's almost as if he is saying, you know, you think your life is short. You think that you don't have enough time to do everything that needs to be done. So what if you got a thousand years to do it all? You'd have everything that you need to get done, right? You wouldn't be able to have a bucket list that didn't get finished. Wow, I have all that time. And then he says, let me double it. It's almost like, let's make a deal with Monty Hall. And we'll, we'll give you double the amount of years. So you can have 2,000. Or as I said at the beach, it could be like a mulligan. Because after you've done your first 1,000 years and you realize it's empty, then maybe you could do better the second time around. 
And I talked about a mulligan because when you're playing golf and you put the ball on the tee and you line up to go ahead and hit that ball, if you don't hit it right the first time, the ball will go to the left or to the right or it won't go past the lady's tee. That can be embarrassing. So you do a mulligan by quickly putting another ball on the tee and line it up and hopefully the second time you do better. And so the implication here in this illustration is, hey, if you had a thousand years, do you realize you'd still be joyless? You'd have no hope? Because guess what happens after a thousand years? You die. Oh, oh, but what if I give you an extra thousand years? So you live 2,000 years. What happens at the end of the 2,000 years? You die. Do you feel the hopelessness? He's given us this illustration in chapter 6 of three illustrations. Prosperity without happiness, progeny without honor, and playtime without hope. And it leaves you there kind of breathless. This is kind of miserable. Pastor, why do you have to stay in Ecclesiastes? Why can't we go to a happy place? Isn't there a good book? Let's go to Song of Solomon. My beloved is mine and I am my beloved's. Let's go back to puppy love. Actually, in chapter 6, he de after the three illustrations, there are four doctrines, four doctrinal insights. Uh, I mentioned three in particular, but there are four. So let's look at verse, uh, if we will, verse 8, 9, 10, and 11. I want to read it for you very quickly, and then you'll be able to see how the doctrinal points come out. For what advantage does the wise person have over the foolish person? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? In other words, while he's alive. Verse 9, better is the sight of the eyes than the wondering of the appetite. Okay, this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. And then in verse 10, there's three more insights. Whatever has come to be has already been named. That's one of them. Second insight, and it is known what man is. And then the next insight, and that he is not able to dispute with one who is stronger than he. I want to tackle those four insights very quickly. And they're, they're doctrinal. They're, they're foundational even to the Christian faith. The first one you're going to realize there is that, is that the person in verse, um, in verse 9, the typical person is, is following their own appetite. Okay? And that's talking about the condition of man. Okay? In other words, you go through your life and you're, instead of doing things because they're good, pure, lovely, and just, you do things because they're popular, because they're convenient, because you can afford it, or simply because everybody else is doing it. I mean, think about it. You know, what makes a TV show popular? Or what makes this uh, so wonderful? Why do people want to go to, the conf uh, to special concerts and stuff? It's because the mass pull, there's a magnet to it. But he's cautioning people. The doctrine that he says is that almost everybody follows their appetite. Or to use the good analogy that everybody's seen before is like uh, Eeyore in Winnie the Pooh who has a carrot dangling in front of his face. And where does Eeyore go? Everywhere the carrot goes. If you want Eeyore to go this way, just move the carrot over here and Eeyore will follow it. You see, that's the way so many people are in this life. They follow their appetite. They want this, they want that, they want that, and so they do the path that gets them what they want or what they think they want. And so the first biblical insight is that that's what people do. And so the antidote to that is that you should have the eyes, you should, I call it the eyes of faith. If you look at verse 8, you can see it, or verse 9. Better is the sight of the eyes. Solomon is now shifting and he's saying, hey, people, there is some things I want you to see. 
Okay, these are doctrinal insights. I want you to look with the eyes of faith. I want you to get the helicopter view and recognize them. The first is that don't follow your appetite because your appetite is not going to get you where you need to go. It's going to leave you empty and vain. And that's what he's been showing in the illustrations. Now, there's three more doctrinal insights that come in verse 10. So verse 10, the first one is, whatever has come to be has already been named. What does that mean? You could argue that, uh, like you said, there's nothing new under the sun. But I, actually, he's, he's making a reference here to a doctrinal point that you may miss because the word God is not in it. But the word God is implied here because in verse 10, whatever has come to be has already been named. Who's named it? God has already named it. And this is where you get this, uh, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. My dad cherished that doctrine. Uh, this was one of his favorite books, The Sovereignty of God by Arthur Pink. I think dad would buy these by the boxes, and whenever he would go, he'd give people the book. He wanted people to know about God, and the emphasis was on God is God. He is not at your mercy. He can do all his holy will. None can stay his hand or hold him back. God is able to do his will. And when you look here, the will of God is seen there in verse 10. Whatever has come to be has already been named. This is the way Solomon as a pundit is talking to secular people. And he says, hey, you think that you get to do whatever you want to do. And he's basically saying, no, there's things that are predetermined. Oh, pastor, you're using the word predestination. Yes, I am. And I can show you in the New Testament that God foreordains whatsoever comes to pass. If I take you to Ephesians 2.10, you can see that God has created some good works for you to be doing which he has before purposed that you should be doing them. God has an agenda. He has a will. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, not our will, but your will be done on earth. Because God has a plan that he's bringing to pass. Galatians 4.4, in the fullness of time, God implemented it. He sent his son into this world. It was all on God's timing. If you go to Revelation 12, you can see the, 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 the way even the planets lined, it up, lined up and the, and the uh, stars and the constellations. You can see that it was God's perfect timetable. The alarm clock went off and Jesus came down from heaven to earth to complete the redemption. It's amazing when you realize it. But when, when he's writing to these secular people, chapter 6, verse 10, whatever has come to be, it's already been determined. That's the sovereignty of God. That's the one biblical insight you want to take notice of. Now, the second one is, is uh, in, in keeping with that, and it is known what man is. The second biblical insight, this doctrine that you're going to see, is that we know that man is finite. When you start looking at the phrases in the text there, we know what man is. We know what mankind is. Is he an accident? Did he get here by some primordial soup that just kind of stirred up after some big bang happened sometime, some billions and millions of years ago? No, we all know what man is. In Psalm chapter 8, you know, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you would even visit him? You have made him a little lower than the angels, yet you have crowned him with glory and honor. It's really interesting. God knows what a man is. How do I know that? Because in the beginning, God created male and female. He created them. He created them in his image, the Imagadeo. God knows what we are. That's why there's no confusion with the genders. 
It's really interesting. God knows what we are and we're finite. And one of the neat things is that Solomon is telling the secular people, you know it too. You know that you can't walk on water. You know that you can't do something so great as to create the world or recreate the world. And I would make applications today. You can't even preserve this earth even if you try to make everything green. You just can't. You are finite. That was the next doctrinal point, uh, doctrinal insight. And the last one is kind of interesting, which ties those things together, that God is sovereign and that man is finite. And the third point there in verse 10 is that, that, he is, that mankind is not able to dispute with one who is stronger than him or than he. Think about that for a moment. God is big. Man is not. Man is small. But man wants to beat up God. The third insight is, you're a fool if you try to fight God. Okay, and that's one of the things that he's bringing out in this text. Uh, he's saying, look at this biblical insight. You should know already that if God is bigger than you, then you don't mess with him. It makes me think of Daniel 4.35. It's when Nebuchadnezzar, who was a bigwig, if there was anybody that thought he was something, Nebuchadnezzar could boast about it. And honestly, he was one of the most powerful people that have ever lived. King Nebuchadnezzar was, I am like God. Until the sovereign God told him, nope. And he took that mighty man and he put him down on all fours. I'm not going to show you. It'll hurt. And for seven years, Nebuchadnezzar was walking around as if he was animal-like. And finally, at the end of seven years, God, in his graciousness, gave him his, his, his wit back. And so Nebuchadnezzar gains an understanding. He didn't forget. And so in chapter 4, verse 35, he says, The inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. If you have the text there, all the inhabitants of this earth, they're, they're basically Nothing. You can have the biggest army, whether you're, you're double the size of the Chinese army or whatever it is. If all the armies of the world, they're nothing. They're like little grasshoppers in his sight. All the inhabitants of the earth are considered as nothing. And God, the Father, does a, 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 what he wants to. And if you look there, you can see he does his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. In other words, our sovereign God can do anything, anywhere he wants to do it. And I love that last phrase. Nebuchadnezzar says, none can grab his hand and pull it back. And none has the right to be able to be like a prosecutor and say, God, you can't do that. None can stay his hand and none can say unto him, what are you doing? You can't do that. You see, this is the application there, is that when you realize that you can't fight against God, and verse 11 explains it with the words. He says, the more words, the more vanity. He says, people in this world think that they can fix everything with their words. We can talk our way out of a box. Maybe some of us have the gift of gab. But you're never going to be able to talk your way out of your problem. That was seen in the three illustrations. The doctrinal insights give us clarity. And that's why the two interrogatives at the end in verse 12. For who knows what is good? And for who can tell man what will be after him? Now, I call these rhetorical questions. You know why they're rhetorical? It, there's a type of rhetoric to them. But we already know the answer without the Bible giving us the answer. 
Let me ask you this. See if you can answer it. For who knows what is good for a person while he's alive? Who knows what is good for you? I got a few of you answering it. Some of you are a little hesitant to say it. Because once you acknowledge it, you're going to realize you're not the one who knows what's best. Be careful. I was just using the illustration of Charlie, my little granddaughter. I like it when I can use her as an illustration. She just turned one, and she came to the beach service a few weeks ago. And when she was there, guess what she tried to eat? You got it. Okay, now... Her parents did intervene, and of course she got a taste of it, and I don't think she's going to be eating a whole lot of sand in the future. Okay, but she doesn't know what's good and what's not good. She's experimenting to try to figure it out because she does, she's not born with that knowledge of, of good and evil. Now, she knows what evil is because she has a sinful nature that pursues something other than God. But if you're going to answer the question, what is good? Who knows what is good? Some of you do seek for some Christian counsel before you make big decisions. You know, if you're going to be moving or if you're going to get married or if you're going to be investing in something. Hopefully you do some searching and you try to find out what's good and what's not so good. And where would you go for counsel? Not really a trick question. You really ought to go to him. Okay, how do you go to God? You ask in prayer. That's why the book of James says oftentimes we don't have because we don't ask or we ask wrongly. We should go to our heavenly father. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. We ought not to be double-minded man. We ought not to be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. We ought to say, well, it seems popular. Oh, or maybe we should try this. No, if an a person who is double-minded is unstable. We go to God for counsel. Now, when sometimes you need clearer counsel than just the word of God, sometimes you go to a preacher or you go to a biblical counselor who can open up the word and show you the way, the truth, and the life. And we'll be taking you to Jesus. We'll be taking you to the words. The Holy Spirit will make it clear what is important to you. And that's why I find when you look at what is good for a person, if you could bring up Romans 8, 28, it's really kind of neat. It's one of the favorite verses that my wife and I have. But when you look at it, you're going to see the word good. And we know that for those who love God, who loves God? Anybody in here love God? Okay, if we know this, this is not something that we're guessing. Paul says, and we know that for those who are God's people, all things work together for evil. Do you understand? God has a good, good plan. That's why we can sing that song, He's a good, good father. He knows what is good all the days of this life. And God has already revealed to us in sanctification what things you ought to do, stay away from and the things that you should run to. We call it vivification, to, to move on to those things, and mortification, where you die and die to the things of this world. It's really beautiful when you recognize it, but the last question where we wrap up the sermon is for who can tell man what's coming next? It's rhetorical. Who can tell you? If you'll turn with me to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. You'll find in James chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, the Bible says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Now, it's kind of neat here because James is almost picking up word for word what Solomon has just said in chapter 6. 
He's talking about people who are making plans. They think they know what they're going to do. We're going to do this and this. We're going to go there and there. We're going to have a party. We're going to have a celebration. We're going to have this. And all of us are guilty of that. Actually, I'm kind of proud of you for having plans. You don't need to feel guilt. The problem is not that you make plans. The problem is, is that you make plans without consulting God. You see, Solomon in Proverbs 3 said, trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on, on your own thoughts, on your own conclusions, on your own plans. Do you see Solomon is now getting there in chapter 6 and he says all these illustrations about uh, what I called a, a prosperity without happiness, a progeny without honor, a playtime without hope. All of those things are your reality if you don't know who can show you the way. James chapter 4 continues, verse 14. Yet you do not even know what tomorrow will bring. You see, the answer to the question in, in Ephesians 6, or in Ecclesiastes 6.12 is you don't know what's on tomorrow. You don't know whether you'll have a stroke. You don't know whether there'll be a car accident. You don't know whether there's going to be um, somebody donate a liver for Matt. You don't know anything about tomorrow you just hope for it and if you're trusting in God you know what's good and so you keep doing the good things because God says he's going to work it all together for good to them who are the loved who are who love God who are the called according to his purpose and so he goes on he says in verse 14 uh, what is your life for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes Solomon has just told us that we are uh, like a shadow in chapter 6, our life is like a shadow. It seems to come and go. In fact, you can see that in the illustrations. You might feel like your thousand years is a long time, but it's just like a, a little glimpse. He finishes up by saying, your life is more than you know, even though it feels like it's a little drop of time. And this is where the answer to our issue is. Who knows what's on the horizon? Verse 15. Instead, this is what believers, people who love God, ought to say if it is the Lord's will. This is what I meant by God knows what's best. There was a TV show that was pretty popular when black and white TV was, was, was the norm. Father knows best. There's some truth to that. Although today's world, I'm not sure if fathers know best anymore. But our Heavenly Father knows best. If the Lord wills, then that's what we're going to do. You see the whole shift in all of this? As you boast in your arrogance, verse 16, all such boasting is evil. That's the true evil. And that's what Solomon was telling us in chapter 6, verse 1. There is a grievous evil in this world that things don't work out the way we expect them to. And the whole point is is because people like you and me don't run to Jesus. Jesus is the answer to that question. Who knows what's good for you? Jesus. Who knows what's on tomorrow? Jesus. And that's why I can quote for you Jesus' words from John chapter 14. Jesus says to us, let not your hearts be so troubled. You know about the Father. Believe me. I'm one with the Father. And he says, I'm going to be away for a while. I'm going to leave this earth. 
of course, I'm going to leave the Spirit to empower you, and we're going to have the church that's going to be able to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, but I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. A good place. I sometimes say it's the condo by the Crystal Sea. No maintenance fees, no HOAs. On the streets of gold. It's going to be beyond our imagination. Let not your hearts be troubled. He says, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am you may be. Do you understand the peace that passes understanding? This is why, and I'll finish with this verse, verse from chapter 5, which we've already read. Um, Ephesians chapter, uh, Ephesians chapter uh, 5, the last verses. This is why, where the joy and the cup of the Lord is overflowing. Chapter 5. He says, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them. God has blessed you with so much. You don't have to wait till Thanksgiving to, to count, you know, that song that says, I've got so much, 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 so much to be thankful for. You get the idea. We don't have to wait till Thanksgiving. Everyone also that God has given wealth and possession and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and to rejoice in, in the work that God has given you to do, this is God's gift to you. You see, once he has saved your soul, once he came to this earth and died on the cross to take your place, now we are his workmanship, Ephesians 2, verse 10, created in Christ Jesus to good works that God has before ordained that we should do. Let's be about our Heavenly Father's business. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to the conclusion today, we marvel at the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. There have been people throughout the ages, even in the last five or 600 years, that have written many, many papers and books and treatises. There have been denominational departures and breakdowns. People can't get along, whether their followers are Arminius or Calvin or Zwingli or Luther. All these, these church historians, they struggled. But Lord, we know from Solomon that you are the one that establishes the direction of this world. We pray that your will will be done on earth. And we pray that you will equip us to be doing your will. To be happily a part of it. To find our joy in doing what you have given, in, in receiving this gift that you've given us, a purposeful life. Lord, we don't need a thousand years or even two thousand. We don't need to have a hundred kids. Might be nice to have a few. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. You have given us all that we need in Christ. And that's why Paul wrote so well to the Philippians that the life that I now live I, or to the Galatians, the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's from Philippians. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to trust you even more and not lean on our own understanding. In Jesus' name, amen.